Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Now he is chief economist and chief market strategist at MKM Partners, and it's great to have you here and watch. You've survived Halloween. I have. Thank have you for all. having me. <laughs> I went to bed early. That's what happens when you're old. Wisely done. All right. Let, let me start with the Fed meeting and, and the data that the, the Fed will be pouring over, the FOMC will be pouring over today. What's most important to them right now as they're, as they're weighing what to do? Well, it's, uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think the payroll data tends to be weighted more um, because we've seen the Fed <clears throat> start to try to push expectations for a rate hike uh, into markets only to back off if there have been weak data on the payroll side. So uh, assuming that uh, the six-month moving average, say, for payrolls, it's been actually you know weakening with, with a slowdown in, in GDP growth over the last two years, but assuming we don't end up with a couple shockingly weak reports you know, chances are they'll move rates again in December. They're not going to do it this week. There's no press conference. And so I think this is going to simply going to be more signaling. So the next two payroll reports, if they're way out of line with consensus expectations, that could then, you know, move the pendulum the other way. What does the, the signaling look like? What are you going to be looking for in the statement? Again, no, no press conference this week. There will be a statement. What are you going to be looking for? Well, I think they're just simply, you know, I don't think, you know, they don't want a bombshell to be in these statements. They're pretty carefully designed to, to avoid that. I think the Fed's very content that futures markets now are, you know, signaling a 60, 70 percent probability for a December rate rise. The Fed desperately wants to move short rates up. They've been dissuaded from doing so this year, <clears throat> first because of financial market instability in January into mid-February, and then just because the macro data has been soft. You know, we're getting job growth, but the unemployment rate's actually leveled off. So in Yellen's model, which is a slack-based Phillips curve model for the inflation process, that means you're just growing at potential, and so hence you wait for more information. So, you know, where are we now? I actually, you know, am a little bit more comfortable with the setup <clears throat> versus last December. So credit markets had been weakening dramatically going into last December's rate rise. Inflation expectations had been slumping, and the Fed was effectively ignoring it. <clears throat> now with the slowdown in the pace of rate hikes, credit markets more stable, inflation expectations right. have been higher. So not a setup that looks like last December, and that's a good thing. David Gurl, uh, a date calendar the next seven days? Yeah. Just unreal. A lot coming up. Fed, yeah. Bank of England, Jobs Day. Yes. Dash to the weekend, and then head battleground the states exactly. and head to the polls. Yeah. Greg Villiers just uh, publishing his note moments ago. New bombshells fall on deaf ears. We'll get that to you uh, in a moment. Um, I, I didn't have a chance, Michael Darda, to ask you about this. I thought Stanley Fisher's speech was uh -huh. absolutely spectacular. And he's waxing philosophical on his Hicksian ISLM curve. I thought of you. 
Stan Fisher was on the <laughs> IS you, curve, which is the real economy. Right. It, it was great to see someone talk about the real economy. Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, the Fed has been involved in a, in a learning process this year, and Stan Fisher early was out there as a m- much more hawkish voice. The, you know, and in the, in the whole committee then ended up doing a lot less than they had signaled at the beginning of the year. If you remember, the signal was for four rate rises with a credit market meltdown and a big collapse in inflation expectations. That backing away that has allowed stability to return, I really think, had they followed through, the cycle's over. So I'll give him and the others credit for not following through um, in that case. And if it were up to me, I would not move in December, simply because nominal growth is still slow. That Q3 GDP report was puffed (laughs) up by inventories and trade. If you take that out, we're only annualizing at 3% nominal, the minimum that you'd need even with these weak productivity statistics to generate on-target inflation. And I mentioned the tip spreads moving up, but they're still way below a level you'd expect to be consistent with the Fed's inflation target. So I would be you know, in the Fed Governor Brainerd camp still. But I think they'll move in December barring weak data. There's a there's a theme here of, of central banks and learning processes, mm-hmm. it seems like today, from what we heard from the, the Bank of Japan as well, an acknowledgement that uh, maybe there was a touch of too much hubris at the beginning and, and <laughs> yeah. we have to learn as we go. Well, and I'm glad you brought up the BOJ. In the case of the learning process there, it may be going in reverse mm-hmm. gear. I think they did have some success initially with their QE effort, but something's gone very wrong this year. And you can also see it in the inflation expectations markets where from 2013 to 2015, inflation expectations in Japan went from zero or sub-zero up to one and a half, a big move. Nominal growth and inflation both improved. But this year, those expectations have faltered back to zero. So the move to negative deposit rates in this most recent shenanigans in jujitsu with the long end of the yield curve are being taken by investors as a sign that, that the BOJ is effectively going to throw in the towel. Now, that may be wrong, but if it's wrong, they need to correct it, and they're not doing it. What was your takeaway? Speaking of inflation expectations, going back to, to the speech Tom mentioned, the one that Vice Chair Fisher gave at the Economic Club of New York, in which he addressed the, 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 those who have argued for changing the inflation targets. Did he sort of settle that once and for all in that speech, or do you think this is very much a, a conversation that's continuing about where they should be? Well, yeah, nothing is settled, yeah. uh, especially in, you know, in this backdrop. So uh, you, the, the argument is that in a, in a very low-growth backdrop, you're going to hit zero on short rates more frequently. And the two ways to address that are either with negative deposit rates, which have not been popular from a PR perspective in in parts of Europe and Japan, or a higher inflation target. But the question comes up that if the Fed is either unable or unwilling to hit the current 2% PCE target, then what good does it really do to announce a higher target. Uh, And Fed President Williams actually was the first to, in a blog post, address the prospects for nominal GDP level targeting or higher inflation targets to deal with the the zero lower bound in in the future. But he's also been one, not a voter this year, but he's been one advocating you know, Fed tightening. He's been on the more hawkish side, poo-pooing a lot of the weak data. So it's not settled. You know, we have an ongoing debate and, you know, this may not be settled for a few more business cycles. How much of this, uh, Michael Darda, plays back to over 10 years ago when the Japanese, I mean, they raised rates and had to pull back off the financial crisis. Forget about that. But before that, they raised rates and they had to recant. 
That's that's theoretically in the back of every academic's mind. Yeah, three times. So they raised yeah. rates once in the year 2000. Remember everybody told us one rate hike doesn't matter last December. I mean, the yeah. Japanese raised rates one time in the year 2000. Deflationary recession followed. They raised rates twice in 06 and 07. Deflationary recession ended up back at zero. Even more damning, you know, there, there seems to be this fervor now for demand-side fiscal policy, roads and bridges right. and the like. The Japanese were running huge huge fiscal deficits in the late 90s <clears throat> and that and they still failed to get off the zero lower do bound. We, do we face the same risk as it, even with a teensy weensy rate rise in December we could trigger disinflation or Well yeah selected so, deflation Great question I, I'm more comfortable with the prospects of a December rate rise simply because credit markets are more stable going into it break even markets still too low on the spreads but at least they've been rising Unlike the situation last December, so the Fed's signaling has created um, a bit more confidence, but we still have to basically accept accept the textbook theory and on-the-ground evidence that a decision to raise rates versus not means you're, whatever the path to nominal growth, it's going to be slower and inflation will be lower with tighter money versus not tightening monetary okay. policy. So. That's an argument not right. to do it, in in my view. So Michael Darda with us, MCAM Partners. He does a great job of melding economics into finance and into investment. I was just next year will be a year where big money, big retirement, big insurance money considers matching their liabilities to their ability to coin money. It ain't happening, is it? I mean, nobody's making the hurdle rate, are they? No, they're not, Tom. And one big problem is if you if you assume some kind of a normalization on discount rates, then you have to, by implication, uh, also be assuming a normalization on nominal GDP growth. Right. Uh, and that does not look to be in the cards, not with these weak, weak productivity statistics, these demographic headwinds, right. and the fact that the you know the Fed isn't trying to overshoot its inflation target. It's still expected to undershoot it. So unless you're going to normalize nominal GDP growth, forget about normalizing what the long end of the curve. What will it mean for volatility <clears throat> of the markets if the new set of terminal rates is dampened and lower? And everybody lowers their horizon gradually or maybe in one fell swoop. What does it mean for vol and jump conditions? Well, a great question. It's really going to depend on the Fed and how they conduct themselves. So you're going to have far, you know, far, a far less ability to raise short-term interest rates. Uh, but at the same time, there's less room to maneuver. So the Fed could very easily trigger a recession and a spike in volatility in a you know in a bear market by not moving interest rates up very much we saw the you know a taste of that in december we saw i mentioned the boj in the year 2000 and 06 and 07 and then the ECB in 2011 raised rates, quote unquote, only 50 basis points at exactly the wrong time. It was a huge mistake. Markets crashed. The business cycle rolled over. Tom, this morning you had a you know a, a chart of bank stocks diverging between the U.S. and the eurozone. Mm -hmm. I'd really like to know how what that chart would look like if the e ECB had not blown it in 2011 because you know you go off a cliff and you never make it back up, and it's unfortunate. I want to return to that clarion call for, for fiscal policy you mentioned a few minutes ago. For a long time, it was legislators complaining that the central bank had too much power. Now you've got the central bank complaining that the legislature isn't doing enough here. When is that communications gap going to get, get bridged? 
Well, I'm afraid the whole discussion is upside down, and I see this a lot in client meetings where there seems to be a burgeoning consensus coalescing around this idea that we're going to get demand-side Keynesian pump priming after November, maybe because both Trump and Hillary have proposed infrastructure spending. But if the Fed's comfortable with where the business cycle is, and they clearly are, they wouldn't be signaling a December rate rise, then you know, demand-side fiscal stimulus at this point is only going to result in the Fed tightening more than un- otherwise would be yeah, the case. Yeah, but you admit that we need infrastructure. Uh, sure, but we shouldn't expect it to lift nominal growth with the current Fed reaction function. Where I think fiscal policy could help a lot would be on the supply side. So if we're talking about incentives for growth, things that could lift efficiency and productive potential, maybe some infrastructure could be part of that, but reforms to taxation, regulation, immigration, education, aimed at economic efficiency. Excuse me, are are you running for office? (laughs) I've had a lot of practice with this in client meetings recently because there's been a lot of confusion. And so... You know, you're getting All the people stump care speech. about is WikiLeaks and emails. <laughs> David, jump in here. We, we began with that Stan Fisher speech. Let's end it here with uh, Janet Yellen's speech. She called for that high high pressure, called for thinking about running the economy at higher, yeah. a higher pressure here. That stands to benefit what more? The employment picture, the inflation picture? What's the, the rationale for doing it as you see it, if, if there is one in fact? Well, within the context of that speech, she mentioned it um, – you know, potentially helping the supply side, which is very controversial. You know, the the consensus view is that the supply side has nothing to do with monetary policy. What she said is maybe this big cyclical decline in 08, 09 and the weak recovery has also resulted in a drag on productivity that maybe could be partially or fully reversed if we run hot. But I think the speech has been misinterpreted to some degree because she put it out there as a question that Mm. needed more research, not a commitment to conduct policy at a research conference no less exactly so what would you expect if the fed were intent on running hot not a december rate rise predicated on a bounce back in data that hasn't (laughs) been forthcoming so you know we shouldn't get too excited about Uh the high pressure economy michael darda thank you so much put your trust in matters investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of four trillion dollars why they see their role is to serve not sell that's why charles schwab is committed to the success of over seven thousand independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com We've been looking at the restaurant business, the food business. We're going to digress here away from economics and all that and talk with John Glass, who's done better than good at Morgan Stanley, and looking at our restaurant businesses. What does your area, John Glass, say about the American economy now? What is the trend it's Shake Shack at Buffalo Wild Wings, Zoe's Kitchen. I, it, David, have you ever darkened I have the door not, I have not of a Zoe's, Zoe's Kitchen? kitchen. No, I John haven't. Glass, help me here. What does your world say about the American economy? It's it's saying uh, it's saying slow but steady. So restaurant sales have clearly decelerated in the back half of this year, really beginning in the second quarter. 
So in context, the fourth quarter of last year and the first quarter of this year were actually still very strong for restaurant sales in aggregate and company specifics. And in fact, 2015 was one of the strongest years ever. But the consumers stepped down this year, right? Fast food sales, as, as, as looked at by McDonald's, for example, have slowed. The casual dining industry, the sit-down category, has been slow for a number of years, but that's stepped down as well. So it's a more tenuous consumer, but there's also just some, I'll call it some secular trends within the industry that are changing. So I don't think any individual company is necessarily good bellwether anymore for the industry state. Well, I'll go with that. It is every, I mean, basically... McDonald's is not part of the group almost. They're so big and so blue chippy, they're almost a separate entity, right? Certainly as a stock it is, right? It's a, it's a yield stock for many. It's, consumer, yeah. it's considered a consumer staple by, by many investors. And it's also in the middle of a long-term turnaround, right? They had a lot of success late last year with the all-day breakfast and some value. And then they saw the sales begin to decelerate this year. And I think they've got long-term vision to improve the food, improve right. the experience. But as you know, that doesn't take uh, – it takes more than a few quarters to do that. What, what – now, folks, it's time for CFA Level 4 with John Glass. <laughs> What in God's name is four-wall EBITDA? There you go. So, so uh, the, the conversation today is we, we looked at restaurant unit economics. You think about any chain restaurant, it's really made up of individual restaurants, right? And then there's some yeah. corporate expense on top of that. And so four-wall unit economics is simply what does the restaurant do at the store level? If you were to own that restaurant, what would the cash flow you get as a proprietor from that? And that's the building block of any growth restaurant or any growth retailer, for that matter. How does the four-wall unit economics look? And what we did is we looked across our spectrum of retail universe at companies that are still growing square footage. And there's about 37 of those stocks within retail, all my co colleagues here uh, cover. And really only even a very small subset of those that still have both great unit economics and great growth potential, right? If you have great economics but not as much uh, units to open going forward or and as many, it's not as attractive to investors. And the standout here, one of the stars is Shake Shack. God. What is that business doing so well? Attracting so, my wallet on the weekends. Yeah, yours and yours and mine both, and, and my family's. Look, I think that Shake Shack is is unique within the in the market in so far as it has a fantastic brand. Right, consumers uh, recognize it around the country and around the world. So its average store sales are north of five million dollars, which is an extraordinary feat in in the restaurant industry. And because of that high volume, right, they are being able to produce restaurant level margins that we almost never have seen before in this industry about 30%. The average restaurant does about 20%. So those of you thinking about opening a restaurant, think about 20% cash flow margin as a good target. 30% is extraordinary in that, in that respect. So I think that's what makes that business model so unique. High volume, high margins. Now, I, I would say it's important to disaggregate between what great unit economics are and what great stocks are. And I think one of the observations we made here is that the scarcity of growth has made investors typically overpay for that growth. And as a result, Sometimes great unit economics and great-looking fundamentals can not not always translate into great stocks. Another company you're overweight on here is is Wingstop. Uh, you say there's 50% unit potential remaining there for for the uninitiated. What is under the Wingstop aegis, and and why does it have so much potential here for growth? What? Yeah, what Wingstop, I like to call it the subway of, of chicken wings, right? So they, they uh, 
are able to uh, do over a million dollars in a box that's the size of the average subway uh, uh, subway shop um, in very um, uh, I'll call them inexpensive locations. You know, in many cases B and C locations. They attract uh, you know a consumer that's demographically diverse. It's operationally simple. It serves chicken wings and two sides, and they put sauces on them. Seventy-five percent of the business is a takeout business, so it's a very attractive yeah. business from a from a franchisee standpoint. And because there are just under a thousand of them today, mm-hmm. and the category is vast, that that gives you the big that gives you the big growth opportunity. You know, I, I look at all of this. And I look at Shake Shack just as, again, as one example. And if Randy Garuti or Jeff Utz are, are listening to this show, Mr. Glass, what is your advice for a growth machine that's 1% the size of McDonald's on revenue? What should Shake Shack not do as they try to expand? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think what not to do is to, to try to satisfy the market's appetite for growth and instead do the right thing for the business. If I've observed one thing over the years of followed restaurants is that um, chasing Wall Street expectations and growing too quickly usually doesn't end well. We've seen time and time again that sort of, uh, uh, that sort of downfall. I also think keep, keeping true to what they do well, uh, which is part of that, you know, keep managing expectations, do what they do well, over-expansion of the menu, over expansion of the footprint those are all things that um uh, that can clearly run into financial yeah. you know issues down the road what they are doing well clearly is attracting customers so obviously people appreciate it for what it is and it's unique uh in its unique qualities versus mass fast food strikes me there's there's a danger here i was living in washington dc before i moved to new york there was a shake shack there there are, i don't know how many shake shacks here in new york but there was a a real novelty to visiting one when you came to town uh, now that they are expanding, do they risk losing some of that, some of that uh, New York feel, East Coast feel, Washington feel? Uh, how, how are they going to capture that going forward? I, I think there's a real, I think there's a real point to that, right? Which there is a brand. I look, I've, I've been around these names for years, and Krispy Kreme comes to mind in the early 2000s. It was had a lot of novelty value, but when you do expand a brand that has a cult following and make it too easy to access, uh, consumers do sort of begin to take it for granted. So, I think we're early, early days. There's less than a hundred of them in the uh, Shake Shacks in the U.S. today, so I don't think we're uh, in 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 jeopardy of that yet. But I do think making them too accessible and either compromising on real estate or just simply degrading the brand through that process it is a key risk. As I said, I don't think we're yeah. there yet, but, um, you know, it'll look different if there is one in every corner, right? And an institutional buy and hold, are these still cyclical story stocks or can they develop a persistency of cash flow that gets an adult's attention? Yeah, so, you know, the restaurant industry has evolved over the years to make them much more adult stocks. When I first started covering restaurants in the 90s, investors said to me, listen, every time I've got the urge to buy a restaurant, I lie down until the urge passes. <laughs> and I think that's because restaurants were bad investments, in many cases, because they were uh, cyclical, they were um, ephemeral, and I think there has been a real transition. The larger companies in the space now have become more yield-oriented, they've become asset-light by becoming more franchised, um, which I think has made them highly attractive to global investors and you can look at names from McDonald's to Domino's et cetera that have that have, that have done that effectively um, I think that um, at the heart of it, though, it's still cyclical business, right? It's a consumer cyclical stock, which means they do well early in the economic expansion, and they begin to run out of steam yeah. later in that expansion. David, did you know that I was talking about the Chicago, the Chicago hot dog at Shake Shack, and Michael Barr walked in the studio? 
You see how we did As if on cue. Yeah, right As on if cue. on cue. David, help us here. Uh, I'm, I'm curious here if you've spotted the next Shake Shack. When you, when you look at restaurants that have the, the opportunity here to grow and to, to, to expand, what stands out to you? Yeah, so there's, you know, the, my experience, everyone's looking for the next, you know, and, and over the years it's been what's the next Starbucks, what's the next Chipotle, for example. My experience is these great growth companies come up about once a decade, right? There's a lot of false starts and hopes among younger companies, and then they hit a stumbling block early on. Um, I think Wing is in that sort of echelon of could be the next big thing, uh, and that's one of the stocks we've recommended. It's still a small-cap name, and it's, you know, it's growing rapidly. Um, but I haven't, other than that, in the public, public realm, I don't know of any others uh, that have those qualities. I'm sure of one yeah. thing, though, which is the U.S. entrepreneur, in particularly in restaurants, is, uh, is, is, is as hard as well, work as I've ever seen it. So there's yeah. going to be new ideas coming to market. John Glass, Morgan Stanley with us on How We Eat. an immense honor for David Gurr and myself. Dr. Winnick is truly one of our giants of history. Uh, Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations, with support from David Rubenstein, has chosen Jay Winnick as historian in residence to the Council on Foreign Relations. That is a good and beautiful thing. Dr. Winnick, wonderful to speak with you. And we go back to your magisterial April 1865 the months it saved America. Right now, a lot of Americans want you to write November 2016, the month that saved America. Your epilogue in your wonderful book was to make a nation. What do we? What can we learn from Jay Winnick's world to help us move forward and make a nation after the elect the campaign we've had? Hey, firstly, it's great to be on your show. I'm a big fan. And, um, and that's an important question. I mean, the country really does feel like it's coming apart right now, and we're literally just becoming tattered at the seams. But let me give you a little example of how history can provide a powerful lesson for about where we're going. Please. And what I think is the strength of our democracy. Let's take the election of 1800. In the election of 1800, for the first time, we had something that we've never seen before, which was John Adams lost the election. Thomas Jefferson was tied with Aaron Burr. And the country seemed really to be coming apart. And this was at its gestation, so it was really quite pivotal. They had 36 ballots, and still it was tied. And at one point, Thomas Jefferson said to the opposition party, he said, if I don't become president, the middle states will arm and there will be war. So think of how tight that was. And on the 37th ballot, though, something really dramatic happened. It was turned over to Jefferson. Jefferson became president. And then in something that really kind of created and fostered the American political tradition, Jefferson gave in his magisterial inaugural, talked about how we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists now. So in other words, he was setting the case that after these bitter, hard, and tough fights, the country somehow comes together. I think our democracy is strong, and I think and it will come together part, again. Part of it beautifully said, and part of that, I might point out, was John Adams' grace. Is that grace gone I don't know that it's gone. It certainly has been gone during this campaign, and this campaign has been hard fought. Um, it's, it seemed very unpresidential, to put it mildly, or to under, not to overstate it. Um, but I think grace, will, we will find it again. It is part of the American political tradition. 
Central to that tradition is respect for and faith in democracy. There has been a lot of rhetoric in recent weeks about rigging, uh, about worrying whether or not our votes will be counted, uh, whether there will be any malfeasance at the ballot box, whether or not the candidates will accept the outcomes of the election themselves. Have we seen this before, and how damaging uh, is that to our notion of democracy here in America? Well, we, we, we have seen it before. We saw it in 1876. We saw it with the... Um, uh, yeah, well, we saw it in 1876. That's a great example. And I think in the end there will be enough there will be enough of a wellspring of, of, um, of, the, of the country wanting to come together, of, of people yearning to come together. Um, you know, this idea that the, that the election has been rigged, I mean, I guess it's okay if there were problems to say we need to ferret it out. But from everything we know, there's no serious mm-hmm. or significant problem. Uh, the election is not going to be stolen. I think it'll be clear. I think it'll be clean. And I think in the end, um, for whatever else has been said, Donald Trump will accept the verdict of the election. And what does he do next? I don't know. Uh, Dr. Winnick, Jill Lepore wrote four years ago in The New Yorker about how we used to vote. It's a fabulous article, folks. I put it out on Twitter uh, this week. And she mentions 1859, where literally people died in Baltimore trying to get to the privilege of voting. Do you trust the voting today, voting machines, paper, chads, electronics, and the rest of it? I mean, that's, it, it, it's a great question, and I, I think it's kind of unknowable. And, and I, I guess one thing that is a little different is, is, you know, history does many things for us. It tells us the story of the human condition. It tells us where we came from, and it gives us insights into where we're going. And it also sort of points out continuity in, in American life. What is different about our voting machines now and what we've been seeing with if, if it's true that the, Soviet, that the Russians have actually been hacking into our, um, into our machines or into our system, uh, that's something that we've never really experienced quite on that level. Um, so there, I mean, it may be a warning that we have to figure out ways to kind of make our, uh, make our whole system a little more secure. How do we boost our cognizance of our respect for history in this country? I imagine in your position now at CFR, you are charged with, in part uh, w- with doing that. How do we get uh, Americans to care more about it? Well, I think they do care about it plenty now. Um, you know, w- one thing, every time I write my books, I mean, they're all New York Times bestsellers, um, and I travel around the country, and I just find that Americans are hungry and yearning uh, for history because it does tell us, where we came from and yeah, where I we're agree. going. I mean, Ron Chernow changes with Alexander Hamilton. You guys, every time you write a yeah. book, you know, the cast register rings. People are, it's insatiable, isn't it? It, it? it really is insatiable. And, and frankly, it's quite heartening because, uh, because it says that, uh, that they're not detached from it. And I would also say that our leaders feel that they can learn from history. You know, putting aside whatever one's political considerations are, you know, right after 9-11, George Bush got off of Marine One on the, lawn, on the lawn of the White House, carrying my book, April 1865. Why was he doing that? Well, in this time of great trauma uh, in the nation's life, uh, in the nation's history, he was well, reading about how we had been there before with Abraham Lincoln. Uh, congratulations on your association with the Council on Foreign Relations. Just a brilliant move by David Rubenstein and... Uh, Richard Haas as well. Jay Winnick, 1865, among any number of other books, 1944 as well. Can't say 
enough about it. We're thrilled to have Dr. Winnick with us uh, this morning. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.